Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Pomey. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website today. at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network to enjoy fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care. So today I come to you from the balcony of my sumptuous apartment here in Las Vegas, Nevada, known to some as the hottest city in America. And it is possible you may hear a little bit of a rattling noise behind me. I don't know how well my noise cancellation mic is working. For some reason, the tin roof over the parking lot rattles all the time. Could be because we're close to the airport. I have absolutely no idea. But this is the type of place where you are going to have those breakthroughs. It's not going to be sitting behind your desk staring at your computer screen. It's going to be outside enjoying some air. And that's what we're going to do today. So our topic for this conversation is one that I think you're going to find very, very interesting. And the challenge is coming up with a title for it. So it's going to be a wide-ranging interview. I can promise you that right now. We're going to touch a lot of topics. So we're speaking about finding your confidence. We're going to speak about finding your audience. And we have somebody here who is that type of polyglot who's going to take us down that journey. His name is Nathan Young. He's an experienced marketing strategist with over 10 years of experience in advising B2B businesses. Throughout his career, Nathan has helped numerous companies build their marketing teams from scratch, delivering successful go-to-market deployments and launching new products into the market. Nathan's diverse background brings a unique perspective to the marketing world. Trained in marketing, he's also worked in finance and management consulting, providing him with a comprehensive understanding of business operations and strategy. Nathan's multifaceted approach to marketing has enabled him to create innovative, data-driven campaigns that have driven significant business growth for his clients. Nathan Young, come on in. The weather's fine. Thank you for having me. This is a, this is an exciting show for me to be a part of, and I obviously look forward to our conversations. Absolutely, absolutely. So I read off your official bio. It's very impressive. In fact, so much so, I'm not sure that I'm worthy to be in your presence. And this is my show. So uh, what we want to do here is uh, we have a few different directions we can possibly go with this. And we'll probably end up meandering in all of them. Our listeners know I tend to open a lot of loops and then circle back and close about half of them before we're done. But before we do that, let's pull back the curtain. And let's put the spotlight on you for a minute. Aside from the official version, the hagiography, tell us something about your personal journey or your business journey or something about your journey and how it's influenced you and brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. So, so I think I think the one thing that um, I'd like to say is, you know, I my 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 path, my career it was was not by any means uh, traditional. It was very much on the path of I truly always believed that I could learn and do something. And I took a lot of risk. And you'll probably hear that a lot from other entrepreneurs that you have to take the risk. But, you know, my first job as a, as a VP of finance in China was was actually taking out just pure hustle and relationships. So it was not it was not based on a resume. It wasn't based on anything. It was really just based on the fact that there was like a very small window of an opportunity. I literally came over to Shanghai. I got the job. And I worked there for a year and a half. And that kind of, you know, put me in a great position for the rest of my life. But I, I think, you know, the, the premise always goes, you know, you don't have to follow a traditional path, but you do have to take risks. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's, uh, there's a couple different places we can go, as I said, finding your audience and finding your confidence. So actually, I want to start with that point before we get into some of the, I, the items you brought up in the green room. So how... Confidence is one of those things that 
excuse me, can be, uh, and again, can be one of those things that can cause podcasters to freak out over the fact they might sneeze during a recording and, oh my God, what is this going to happen? What is going to happen to my image? Are people going to take me seriously because I'm such an amateur? And that can go even further into, well, am I for real? Are people going to take me for real? So you come from these different backgrounds. You have these different areas of experience. And then you move into the area of marketing and product and service launches and things like that. So what are some of the things you've discovered along the way about what fortifies your confidence and some of the challenges that entrepreneurs face from your perspective and how to turn those into positives? So I think the, the the big thing about confidence is probably um, the, the, there's this there's this thing called the spotlight syndrome, um, and spotlight syndrome is kind of this idea where we 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 innately have this uh, thought process where if we were to make a mistake, we uh-huh. feel like there's a spotlight on us, and and what that really means is that we have this this kind of mental image that uh, hundreds thousands of people will see this and that. Uh, everyone is going to know that we made a mistake. And, and that's just inherently not true. And, and that's the one thing that I've certainly learned, not only on a, a business perspective, but also just even on a marketing perspective. There are so many clients and businesses that um, you know, honestly refuse to do crazy, very on the edge creatives. Um, you know, for example, an, an ad that might have something you know, very edgy in their copy or an image that might be a little bit shocking or a little bit, you know, maybe even on the fringe of their brand. And that's always because they go, oh, well, you know, that, that, that might um, move my market the wrong way or give the wrong impression. And the reality is, is that even when you have marketing dollars and you make a mistake on a marketing item, the reality is very few people care. Uh, you know, when you send that newsletter, a newsletter and you, you've got kind of a spelling mistake in the first sentence, the average person isn't going to see that uh, mistake. And even if they did, they're not going to make a big judgment. But we all inherently have this feeling that when you make that mistake, that it's going to, you know, negatively impact your life in, in, in a big way. But that's just not the case. And so I think the, the number one thing, I think, in, in, in just finding your confidence is knowing that failures and mistakes are not seen as widely as you think. And I think getting over that fear um, and, and just really accepting the belief that uh, you can make a mistake and not 10 people are going to stop talking to you or a hundred customers are going to think of you differently that you, that you have that freedom to make those mistakes. I think that's, that's a part of building confidence um, because it gives you the opportunity to make sure that what you, whatever you're doing is actually going to have a good outcome because you're no longer scared of that mistake and you actually put some time into actioning what you're doing. Um, and that leads me to the second point is like, okay, so I, I've gone over the fear part, but how, how do I find that confidence? How do I, how, how am I actually going to get confident? Well, obviously, you know, you, you should get results, right? So, so ideally you get a result, um, but results take time and results come from um, taking risks and if you are constantly scared of failing and that fear part, well, you're never going to take risks. So you're never going to get results. Uh, so I think getting over your fear first and just really accepting the fact that there is something called the spotlight syndrome and it, and it really um, overemphasizes the fact that your mistakes are, are amplified. And that's not true. That's not how reality works. Um, and, the, and, the, and the fact is just taking risks and, and really making sure that you, uh, you don't over plan because you can't plan for everything and knowing that you just have to action. Um, and, and, and just doing that and, and getting used to seeing that through its completion. I think that's, that's where a lot of people can see confidence, but you gotta, gotta get over that fear part first. You know, this brings up a a few things. Uh, one of which I covered in my book, Groundhog Day is an event, not a business strategy. It's actually the very first of the stories I tell within the six components of the spring formula. So I'm going to mention somebody by name, David Perry, uh, author of Guerrilla Marketing for Job Hunters, a good friend of mine. I've done some projects with him in the past. And on one of his websites, he had a banner up for, it was on the front page actually for, I think it was his information his information course uh, or his training course for job hunters. And that banner was up for a year. And then this was during the period where I was doing some work with him. Uh, he sent me an email one day and he said, he said, the graphic designer needs to be fired now. 
Now, yeah, he 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 has a really really um, interesting sense of humor. I mean, I love the guy, uh, and so I knew what he was really saying is I found a typo somewhere. There was a missing word in that banner that had been up for a year. He didn't catch it. His designer didn't catch it. I didn't catch it. His business partner didn't catch it. None of his many clients caught it. It's because of white line fever. When we believe we are reading what we're expecting to read, we see it. Our mind will fill in the missing word. White line fever refers to when you're driving along a, a highway and you already know the you know, you've taken this trip before and you blink and you realize you've driven 20 minutes. You have no idea what the hell just happened. Now, what I've just described comes from neuroscience. What we're programmed to have happen through the way our education systems work and through what happens in some corporate environments is when a mistake happens, somebody needs to answer for this and so you'll have some managers come running out of their office saying we need to have meetings and quality control and uh we need to autopsy this and find out what happened it was a freaking typo so what happens is instead of just saying okay well fix the banner which by the way is all david wanted he just wanted the david, the banner fixed it got fixed it was, it was nothing but uh uh and and i and i say this about david out of love because he is a really good friend of mine and uh and so but what happens instead is when we translate this to online marketing now you have to go through three levels of review before the weekly easing can go out because god forbid there's a typo in the subject line we won't be taken seriously by our market everybody will laugh at us We'll be amateur hour. We'll never get another client again. Does any of this sound familiar? It, 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 100% it sounds familiar. And, and, and I think that's, that's really why I, I, I really caution a lot of companies um, that, that making mistakes is okay. I'm, by all means, look, I'm, I'm not saying you know, go out there and, and do no reviews. But you know, you, what, what you've just outlined there is literally exactly what happens um, to a lot of companies and, and what ends up happening is your marketing becomes incredibly non-agile. Uh, yeah. You are unable to even produce marketing. So now when you're we're producing a new landing page for a campaign, it's not taking a, a four days, it's taking three months. Um, and, and the reality is, is that every single time, and, and any, any business owner should know this, when you add more cooks to the kitchen, um, the line's going to move a lot slower. So, so the reality is, is that you have to be comfortable with the fact that you either have perfection, which is going to give you relatively minimal returns after you're trying to squeeze out the last 5%, or you're going to have speed and you're going to produce products on average between 80 to 90% all the time. And that's okay. Knowing that you have this like kind of 15 to 20%, uh, you know, kind of margin of error that honestly, most people really aren't going to do anything about, and it's really not going to negatively affect your brand at all. So that that's the choice, and 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 you know more often than not, um, yeah, we will hyper respond. We will we will overcorrect, and and we'll go into this like incredibly onerous bureaucratic process of I need it to be ninety nine point nine percent every single time, and if it's not, someone's getting fired, and and that's really not the smartest way to run your marketing operations. Another another example, uh, one of my clients, uh, Dan Janelle, the founder of PR Leads and author of Write Your Book in a Flash, uh, not to mention uh, host of the Write Your Book in a Flash podcast, which is one of ours. He, um, for years, he sent out his own email newsletter every Monday. And you know how in browsers, if you haven't cleared your cache and if you're going to the same field you used before and you type the first letter of what you typed before, it'll auto-populate what was there before. He was used to the idea that, that the subject line of every week's easing began with his name. So he typed the letter D and then without thinking, he didn't like click on the rest of it. So when he sent out that easing, the subject line was a lowercase D. Now you're thinking, Oh my God, now what this, uh, this, this journalist, this media publicity guy, uh, this author book coach, developmental editor, ghostwriter, had a massive glaring typo in the subject line of his easing. Well, you know what happened is uh, 
somebody wrote back to him and said, uh, you know, uh, I've been getting your easing, but I haven't been reading it lately. And when I saw what you did with your subject line, I just had to open it up and see what you're up to. By the way, where do I sign up for PR leads? Actually, he got three new clients out of that email. It's it's honestly just because people, you know, breaking breaking something that's consistent sometimes yields results. Breaking the white line. Yeah, that broke the white line fever. Yeah. And 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 yeah, and that and that's the whole point. You know, we I guess the other thing is also it's very similar to that of banner blindness, right? Why the why campaigns through time just stop performing. People start just not seeing it anymore. Um, so so sometimes consistency is good, but realistically, A B split tests, as simple as that. Um, obviously, you know, yield some good results. Right, right, right. So, so we have so we have this thing where fear of error can take a big bite out of our confidence. And I like to give an interesting counterexample. And this is a, a client that I was involved in several years ago, where my client and somebody else were putting on a joint seminar together. It was actually a it was actually a virtual seminar, but they were doing it together. So my client's side was handling the payment processing and putting up the web page. We had our, uh, the two sides had already agreed on what the domain was going to be and they had agreed that the website would be up by April 13th. So and I, and I think it was something like April 13th. We'll just use that uh, so I can tell the story. So on April 7th, the other partner sent out a broadcast email of their 60,000 subscribers telling them that the conference was on and to go that link to sign up. Now, my client had a connection like, did we miss something? Did we, did we drop the ball here? Oh, this is really bad. She sent out that email and it has the link and the website isn't up yet. Well, then uh, she went to... Uh, offer a heartfelt apology to her partner. You know what the partner said? Said, well, yeah, I know. It's website's going to be up April 13th. And I know full well you guys are going to have that website up on the 13th. I just didn't want to wait. Anybody who writes to you and and asks where the website is, just send them to me. I'll close them over the phone. It's I think I think they sold like 10 or 12 tickets. And this is <clears throat> this and this wasn't a $97 ticket. This was like four digits. So, yeah, so it's, obviously there's a need, right? So, yeah. so I think, I think people, again, just through fear, just are so scared, right? Yeah. Like these mistakes mean so much more, but the reality is, is that if you, if, as long as you're, as long as you're marketing to the right people and the, and the content's right, the, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Um, there's still a way for you to salvage a mistake. And, and, and right. I think that's, that's the thing where people just like over uh, entirely overreact. Yeah, uh, I had a client once who had a policy that if he sent out an email with a broken link, he did not send a correction. In fact, his words were, oh, too bad. And his view was anybody who was reading who was interested would contact him, and then he'll, that would just get him one degree closer to a customer. So I give these examples just to show how to invest in that silver lining. Uh, every cloud has a silver lining. Well, silver is a precious metal. And the most precious thing is the fact that you just get your stuff out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, but seriously. So, so here's, here's another example that, that I'll, I'll, I'll give another example of, of this, of this actually, this is a, this is a perfect example. It's an example because it's so scalable and it's so big and, and like, and, and, and like not a ton of marketing and, and, and it has to be a case study. The transition to electric cars is a perfect example of um, very little perfection. Yeah. Um, and very, very, and, and very bad marketing to a certain extent. Um, so, so if we think about it, Tesla, you know, I'm not, you know, we, I'm not going to talk about Elon, but let's just talk about the product for a second. Oh, I'm going to talk about Elon in a minute, <laughs> but you finish but, your story about Tesla. But, but, but like, let's just look at this, for example, like, so when you have a good product and you, or, or in this case, you know, maybe good marketing um, and, and you have a decent product, you, how many things in, in, in a Tesla car is poorly done? I've I, I've never driven a Tesla, but I've ridden in several of them. And I'm going to tell you candidly, I like how they handle, like how they feel when they drive. But I think that that big computer screen they have on your dashboard is vastly inferior to what's in my Mazda 6 Touring Edition. 
pro- pro- probably or even the yeah. new fort even the new fords because those are gorgeous but the, the reality is is like the fit and finish of the car is terrible the paint can get etched by even like bird poop like that's yeah. how bad the paint job is right so so you you think about that and 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 you think about how the fact that that was actually that's it's widely known it's widely known that all of their cars have terrible fit and finish like leather isn't po- properly on the on, on the in, on the chairs paint is is, is bad uh basically every plastic thing on the exterior car is probably about to fall off and yet everyone bought it well i mean the same thing could be said about the third generation general motors f bodies meaning the 1980s camaros and firebirds i had a 1988 camaro and uh i loved how that thing drove i loved how it sounded when i put the system in and uh i think the thing lost about eight trim pieces during the six years that i owned it (laughs) <laughs> so so it goes back to this thing it's just like we all think and i think we all inherently um f- f- believe this at, at some age that perfection is the only way to be successful in the world like you have to be a hundred percent on everything but there are so many real life case studies where perfection is not in fact there and yet there is still very successful outcomes and uh and and i think everything so you know we're talking about confidence this is confidence about yourself that you don't have to be hundred percent. This is confidence in your product. It doesn't need to be hundred percent. And, and more specifically confidence in the fact that your marketing doesn't need to be hundred percent. You can still be successful. So dwelling on this idea that you've got to be hundred percent, it's just a bad exercise. Yeah. Well, I said, I was going to mention a couple things about Elon. And uh, one of which is, is here's a guy who is a one of my anecdotes about him is when he sold out of, when he sold out, of paypal i think the number was 20 million i think that's what he got for it i can't remember exactly maybe it was 20 maybe it was 200 i don't have it in front of me and i always get this mixed up but here's the point whatever the payout was he gave all that money out as investments in three other companies that he was either starting or investing in and then a couple days later asked his buddy to give him a loan because he needed money to pay rent so this, I mean, this is the guy who goes all in on steroids. Um, and uh, there's also speculation as to whether or not Elon owns a house. Uh, it's believed he might own a mansion somewhere. But the only thing that I've seen that is actually credible among the stuff that he still owns, because I know he sold off a bunch of stuff, is some $45,000 house right near where SpaceX is. It's this, I mean, it's this, it's actually pretty similar to my apartment and I minimal, minimalist and essentialist. So it's small and I don't have much by design. Uh, his is about the same way. However, in all of his companies at their corporate headquarters, he has little apartments carved out because whenever he's focusing on one particular company at a time, and that's how he does, it. he spends a while at one company and then moves to another, he'll literally live there. It's, uh, I mean, that, that's, that, that's, that, that's another thing. So he doesn't eat, so he also doesn't demand perfection in his lifestyle. As long as he has a place to sleep and he gets a meal every once in a while and maybe a couple, couple hours sleep every few days, he's good to go. And then we can also look at the acquisition of Twitter. Uh, it turned out that he overbid on it and he ended up paying more than it was worth. And when it got to the point where he just said, well, all right, I'll buy it. And uh, I mean, he kind of had to, like, well, I'll acknowledge that, but it just rolled off his shoulders. Like, okay, so I spent billions of dollars more than I probably had to, but I did. Now, my prediction then, and this is my prediction now, and I'm just going to leave this hanging in the air. He he became the uh, the functioning owner of Twitter in October of 2022. My prediction is by October of 2024, there will no longer be a Twitter. Not because he's going to run it into the ground but because his intention was not to buy it and fix it up and put a fresh coat of paint on it, he was actually buying the data and the infrastructure so that he could use it as a code foundation for something else entirely. And this is the point that people miss about him. And it was actually similar. You mentioned Tesla. Tesla was an existing company before he got involved in it. And he bought in and he just uh, and he just fundamentally transformed it. Tesla would not be what it is. And the progress of EVs would not be what they are had he not taken something that already existed and be willing to make a hell of a lot of mistakes molding it into his image. 
Yeah, I'm not. I'm not too sure w- whether or not I'm. I stand with you on that. And that point. you don't have to. <laughs> but but you know what I will say. One thing is, smart people in general, when they make a public mistake, I often find it's not a mistake, because we as just humans like to think we're smarter than the average bear, and we're not. Often we're not. And uh, and I do. I, I will say. That I, I'll be, I don't think, I mean, whether or not the Twitter is going to be gone or not, I, I will say you're probably right in the sense that there's something that we're not aware of. I, I, didn't, I didn't say Twitter was going to be gone. I said there wasn't going to be a Twitter. It's going to morph into and become the else. foundation of something else. And when he's already starting that with, um, I, I mean, the idea of people bit paying for blue checks, um, that, that's your entry-level monetization to separate the wheat from the chaff. And then you go from there, if you look at this from a marketing perspective, this is how I see it anyway. And again, I could be off, and maybe there's something he hasn't revealed to us yet or he hasn't even thought of, but he's been speaking about uh, making it a, a platform where people can sell their premium content. So first of all, you do the blue checks. That separates out who the more likely serious customers are. That's how you, how you know who to focus on and then tells you who they are. And then you roll out things at higher price points that cater to their needs, wants, and desires. That's how I saw the blue checks in the very beginning. Yeah, no, and 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 it was all also just something that was quite easy for him to monetize, right? Yeah, it's just this idea of just just creating a, a a line of revenue that was easy because everyone wants to be authenticated because because essentially spam is is so rampant, um, and also fake accounts of real people are rampant. So that's why easy. that's why I ended up overpaying. There were a lot more bots than he th- than uh, had been reported, and his own initial analysis had revealed. Yeah, <laughs> well. To be honest, I, I have a, I have a bit of a background in that side, and and uh, and it's it's not that hard to create bots, you know. No, um, no, it isn't. Yeah, and 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 the funny thing is, is that um, it doesn't matter what security protocols you are. The whole point is, is that security protocols just make more complex bots. That's all it does. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's like trying to fight computer viruses. All they're going to do is make better viruses. It's like viruses that affect human beings. They uh, they mutate and you get variations because they find because the, they find their way around the uh, the immunizations. Yeah, uh, that I mean they're they're resilient in that in that case. My final thought about Elon here is uh, a quote that's attributed to him, where I, I'm going to paraphrase it. It's the idea that if you if you have a plan, if you have a plan, you've set up like a 10-year plan for something you want to accomplish, try doing it in six months. You're unlikely to succeed in doing it. However, you'll be a lot further along than the person who just assumed it would take 10 years. Yeah, which which really comes back to this whole thing. Just just do it. Just stop waiting for perfection. Just start yeah. moving. Yeah. And uh and so Basically, with that, I, I think we've covered a lot about the uh, confidence side of this conversation, finding your confidence. Now what I want to do, and this is going to be a lot more about you, is finding your audience. So, And this is where I want to discover more on behalf of our listeners about your approach to marketing and your approach to launching and things along those lines. So some of these questions are going to be kind of nitty gritty in nature, but this is where I actually have some curiosity. So uh, first of all, in general, uh, what marketing strategies in the current day do you see working best and what are some of the reasons for that? Um, so th- this is a great question and I, and I love answering this question because I feel like the one fundamental thing um, it does not get uh, addressed when, when, when people answer this question. So, you know, um, I'm, you know, you're going to hear someone go, oh, LinkedIn's working great. And then you're going to hear someone else's Facebook's working great. Someone else is going to say TikTok's working great. Someone else is going to say email's working great. Uh-huh. The, the one thing that we practice here at Find Your Audience is, is just this, this idea that there's two main core pillars that, that, that make marketing successful for any business or person. Um, and it comes down to two things, sustainability, which means you can continue the action for a long extended period of time. And practicality, which implies that you have the ability to execute it well. Uh, executing well means you actually have the capacity to do it, you know, above average and hopefully a bit better than that. Um, so when it comes to what's working in the market, I'm, I'm going to simply say almost everything works in the market. 
Uh, so I have a bit of a background in something called affiliate marketing, where you know my job is a little bit different. I have multiple offers or multiple things that I can sell, um, but ultimately I have to sell it on particular channels or media channels. And, and in that business, the one thing that I learned was that every offer works on every single channel. And what that means is I could be selling um, you know, a, a CPA or, or trying to get a, a cost per action, call it an email address. And no matter what that offer is, I know that it can work on TikTok. I know that it can work on Snapchat. I know that it can work on Pinterest. But what's most important is making sure that you actually have the perfect funnel. Um, and that funnel really consists of your copy, your landing page, um, the ads, everything has to align. And then ultimately, whatever that aligns to a particular demographic onto that platform, you will convert. So, so what I learned in affiliate marketing was literally every offer, every offer, even if I was selling B2B businesses on Pinterest, there is a funnel of ad creative, copy, landing page, and, and, and you know, kind of email submission requirements that all will actually equal into potential converting leads. It's just a matter of whether or not you want to invest the time in it or you're intelligent enough to actually manage it to that level. So, 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 so I hate to say this, that all marketing activities work. What's most important, this is the most important thing to see success. What can you do as an individual or what resources or constraints are you dealing with so that you can maximize sustainability and practicality. And that's going to be likely the method that is going to work best for you. And ideally, it's a method that is in a channel that is not only has wide reach, which means you have enough ability to actually reach an audience, but you also have the ability to do it well. Um, and, and which means, uh, you know, going to conferences is a marketing te technique, but is it is it something that you as a person, say if you're a personal coach, is that, is that something you're going to be comfortable with because you're, you're not an extroverted person? So it's really hard for you to do that. Um, but maybe you're really good at coding. So maybe online digital marketing is really going to be better for you. So I think when it comes down to marketing activities at work, it, it has to be on this idea that you have to be able to do it and you have to be, be able to do it well. Well, yeah, and I, I think they think there are so many modalities. It's a combination of what's going to best to appeal to the audience you're trying to reach and what is comfortable for you. So, Nathan, uh, you, I, I, I'm imagining you guest on a lot of podcasts because I know you're, uh, when you came to us, you were represented by an agency that sends us a lot of referrals. So you're probably making the podcast rounds right about now. Am I right about that? that that's absolutely making correct. Making lots of appearances and, uh, and, uh, how many of those? How many of those shows are audio only? Um, I would say not very many. I think most of them have kind of a mix between both both audio and video. So mine being audio only, I, we kind of stand out uh, in a way. Yeah, ab ab absolutely. Do, 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 do you know? Do you know why this? Uh, do you know why this show doesn't have a video component? Tell, tell me why. I just don't want to. <laughs> Seriously, I, I I just don't want to. Uh, I don't. I I like having the flexibility that I that I am not nailed down to a location and a set to do these. I like the fact that I don't have to go out of my way to prepare my appearance. That I can be comfortable doing it. That I don't have to sit up and hold a media pose for an hour and uh, let myself get zoomed out by staring into a into a camera so that I look a certain way. I, I love that. Uh, these conversations are more mastermind conversations. The listener is invited to be that third person sitting in on a mastermind conversation with their notepad out, finding those slight ahas that can change your trajectory or move them closer to their intersection of their brilliance and their passion. Uh, sometimes my guests say something that just inspires me so much, I'll stand up and start doing the raise the roof gesture just because I feel like it. Uh, maybe my cat will be uh, pawing at me. I, I mean, I don't I don't know, whatever, whatever it is. Uh, like right now, I'm sitting out on my balcony. It's a nice day here in Las Vegas. I got my laptop. I, uh, I have a, I have a cigar lit and I'm just having a great conversation with a great guy. Uh, that's, that's what I want this show to be. Now that's my comfort zone. Now let's match that to our audience. I have a throng of people, not a huge group. I'm, I'm not going to lie and say we have billions and billions and billions served. We're not McDonald's. Uh, but, uh, 
but I do have people who religiously tune into everything I produce, some of whom I see personally as I walk around Las Vegas, and uh, they, by and large, listen to this show, streaming it in the background while doing something else. So they're not going to be watching anyway. So why would I go through the effort? So, so you know, it sounds like, and, and, and I'll just bring this back to some of the theories that I had. It sounds like you, you've built this, you've built the podcast, the operations of your podcast to essentially be sustainable for you. Because, yeah. you, because, because all I'm hearing is just you've done it in such a way where you know that you will not get annoyed or tired of doing the podcast for a long period of time. And, and you know this that podcasts don't well unless you're very lucky and you you've 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 kind of kind of whether it's timing wise or just virality or topic wise lucked out on kind of when your first or four have really blown up it takes time to build an audience and so uh-huh. so, that, so 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 designing that operation designing those requirements for yourself have allowed you to really do this a long period of time without taxing yourself to death a long time uh our 10th anniversary is coming up we're one of the long we're we're one of the longest continuously running entrepreneurial podcasts on the air today we have well i've lost count we have well over 600 episodes i'd have to log into the website which i haven't done in forever and uh count how many posts there are it's it's like i I, i've lost track i'm i'm at that i'm at that point in the evolution of the show where if I run into somebody along the line and they say, hey, remember when I was on your podcast? I'm just going to say yes and take their word for it, whether I remember or not. Well, I hope I that, 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 should, that should give that should get that should give you an idea of stick to and longevity. Well, look like, yeah. And 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 and, and, uh, and look, it's, I, I think sustainability is huge because the reality is and, 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 and this is the thing that everyone overlooks. It, it takes time for everything. I know that sucks. But you gotta you gotta keep at it, right? And 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 uh, and I think this is a great example of how you've designed it so that you can do it for so long. But but that's obviously why it's successful. Yeah, precisely. So going so going along these lines, um, you're gonna need you're at some point gonna need some sort of team for this. So how do you go about doing your marketing team building? Uh, this is such an open ended question. I'm gonna allow you to answer it as you see fit. That is a, that is a loaded, loaded question. I'll walk, I'll walk first in in kind of the direction of why I started our our business was this whole idea was I was a marketing advisor for several companies and it was really stupid because I would, I would provide all these actionables and then they would hire someone who's not capable. And then my advisory work would look bad um, because it'd be like, well, we did what you said, Nate, and it didn't work out. I was like, yeah, well, like you, you kind of cheaped out on who you were executing with. And, and so therefore the outcomes were bad. So, um, it, there's, there's definitely a lot of approaches, but the number one thing I simply say is, look, I, I know that everyone kind of hopes or dreams or, you know, potentially fantasizes the idea that they're a great marketer. I'm going to say good for you. Um, I appreciate that. And if you really, really constrained, do your own marketing. That's great. But if you can afford it, if you can afford it, it is, it is going to be worth a lot of money and a lot of time. If you simply just start with a conversation with a actual marketing professional and no, I'm not talking about a guy who's charging $50 an hour. I'm probably talking about a guy who charges you 400 to $500 for the first hour. And I can almost guarantee you, you're going to save money from that one hour conversation, because that person, whether that's me or, or, or anyone else, I don't care who it is. Ideally, someone with a good resume, that's worth that amount of money. Uh-huh. Um, they're going to give you a lot of shortcuts and a lot of heartache that you don't need to face and a lot of time saved. And that's going to equate more than four to $500. So that's the first thing. So don't try to build a marketing team without talking to a marketing advisor of any sort, at least for an hour. Um, typically what ends up happening for companies is, uh, you 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 tend to try to hire a coordinator or a marketing project manager, and then you you essentially um, have a, an incredibly over exaggerated idea of what these people can do. And what I'll simply say is, when you're starting out, there's a likelihood that you're probably going to be better off with an agency because the requirements of the specific tactical skill sets that you acquire are never going to be fulfilled by a single coordinator or a manager because these people. Right will only have a sliver of specialty. Um, so you're, you're typically a little bit better off going with the agency, albeit there are some operational efficiencies, inefficiencies that come from that. 
Um, but you, you, but in the long run, you'll probably do better. Um, I like to see companies with what I consider a product marketer in first as a first hire. Um, and the reason I say that is because a lot of companies are like, oh yeah, we've got traction. It's like, nah, you have early adopters. Um, and early adopters are easy because they are the people that like to make early decisions on products that don't necessarily fulfill a need yet at scale. And having a product marketer at first is going to be not only the person that assists the product market feedback loop, it's also going to be the person that helps build the sales enablement tools for your salespeople. So you're kind of kind of killing, you know, two birds with one stone. You're getting um, your salespeople happy because now you actually have a technical marketer who's able to assist them to translate your product or service into something that salespeople can use because salespeople hate building their own stuff. Um, and they, they just want to deal with the relationship. Uh, and then, and then, and then also you have someone who's actually accountable on making sure that the salespeople and the feedback of the sales is being translated back into the product or service that you have in a meaningful way. And I find a lot of organizations don't have someone that's fully accountable for that role. And that's really important when you're starting out because you need to find that product market fit, not just the people who are early adopters. And that's where you're going to start finding scale. Um, so as a first hire, I like to see a product marketer for sure. And then from there, you're really bouncing around between potentially a brand marketer and sometimes direct performance, depending on where you're scaling in terms of revenue tranches. Um, but you know, I'm, now I'm talking in, in kind of the SaaS perspective of like 2 million and up, that's when you start adding more headcount. But if you're sub 2 million, you're probably better off with a product marketer and an agency. Well, yeah. And, you know, with one of the things to be concerned about is, and I'm not sure if this directly applies to what you said or not, but this is, this is what came to mind for me is uh, when I used to have a web development agency, uh, people would come to me and say, you know, what we're really looking for is a one-stop shop. And I would say, well, keep going. It's, um, <laughs> yeah what what i meant what i meant by that is if you're put your all your eggs in one basket you're committing suicide in advance what happens if that basket falls and all the eggs break what happens if uh, you have a falling out with that agency what happens if they decide they don't want to be in the business anymore what happens if you uh decide you're just not happy there or what happens if you want to pivot and they can't pivot with you because uh, where you want to go ultimately is perhaps not where they're headed. And I've worked with uh, companies in my own business that position themselves as the one-stop shop. And I found there were probably about two or three things they did extremely well. And the rest of it uh, had me glad I had somebody else. So, so if, if I were to be honest about our services, you, you've described our services, you know, pr pretty accurately. We, we, we are, we are a, a zero to one function of, of kind of company and service. And, and we probably pr really excel at a couple um, facets of marketing really well, like direct performance marketing, um, conference marketing and, and website development. We do, we do, we do exceptionally well. And then kind of the, the rest is, is we, we, we project manage. And so I think you're you're absolutely correct. Um, having having diverse suppliers or vendors is is important. Um, at the same time, I think there's a, there, there's kind of a diminishing return uh, at a certain point because the the point here is is that when you have multiple agencies, you have you have the requirement of uh, again multiple stakeholders, which means multiple meetings. Um, and depending on the size of the organization and how efficient they are, uh, the 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 how I just said, we don't do everything well. Um, sometimes the quality of work that we may produce in something that we don't do well will likely still be better versus needing to manage a completely separate entity and then um, and then having additional meetings with that entity. Uh, so so it, 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 I think it just, I hate, I hate to say it, but it depends on the organization and depends on how efficient they are. Well, yeah, that, I mean, that, that is certainly the case. And the only way you can really find some of this out is to work with people and and find out uh, what their uh, what their capabilities are. And there's only so much getting to know you that you can do before you actually find out what it's like to work with them. The only real way to find out how to how how, how to work with somebody is to work with someone. Uh, I mean, I yeah, back when I was in that other business ten years ago, I would have uh, clients approach me with these 
really small projects they wanted me to do. And I knew what they were doing is they were seeing what it was like to work with me on a small scale because they had something bigger scale in mind. And I was also aware, at least in the back of my mind, that they'd probably approach three other people with three similar projects just to see what would come out of it. And I thought it was smart because it also gave me a chance to see, do I really want to work with them? <laughs> yeah, it just, uh -huh. it's just, it's, it's, it's time, right? Um, and, 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 and it, it, you just, you gotta, it's, it goes back to what we were just saying at the beginning. It's risk and time, always risk and time. Do what, do you really want to do it? Do you, do you want to, or do you want to continue? I always, I, I joke, I joke with a lot of my, my clients. I always, I always say like, we're, we're all inherently lazy and we all want to make decisions. So sooner or later we make poor decisions because we're just lazy. And so that might be rushing in with a vendor that maybe isn't the best, or it's just not doing enough diligence to actually have enough vendors. So I think um, there, there's a there's a lot more to this decision, and and I think um, you know there, there's no right or wrong. I, I think that's that's also again going back to the the things that we're talking about, the, the confidence and things. Sometimes we just have to do it, <laughs> just have to do it. Yeah, yeah, I abs absolutely. So uh, you make a bifurcation between creative and operations and there are reasons why you pay for creative and why you pay for operations when we're talking about team building so uh, if you could tell us a bit about that so it's it's really interesting so i was i was never i was never think, uh, kind of kind of thought of ourselves as a big creative shop but we we have a pretty creative big creative team and and i've always uh, was kind of curious of this whole idea of like creative and operations creative is is when, when uh, just so the audience knows, when you go to a creative shop, I want you to understand what you're really paying for is called creative discovery. Um, and creative discovery, frankly speaking, is there's only so much um, creative theory, um, call it color theory, or even any like psychological theory that translates into an asset um, actually translates into something that's good when you finally produce a final product. So the reality is, is that you're paying a, a group of designers to essentially iterate or build a, 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 some sort of creative asset. And, and that's what you're paying for. So when you're paying $50,000 for a brand, really what you're paying for is all this creative discovery, which is basically means just very, very iterative creative work. Um, and then there's the operations. And, and this is the operations where I think people don't see in an organization. So our firm focuses on a lot of operations because when you when you start to get, I always say scale causes problems. When you when you deal with eleven different offices across Canada and United States, or if you're dealing with international stuff, every time you produce marketing things, it's not just oh you just produce the asset. It's like no, do you have to translate it? Is there translation issues? Um, are they translated and are they going to be put into PDFs? How exactly does it that does that happen? Who takes care of that? Who distributes that? And that's the operational side of marketing that I think people don't see. Um, the other more simple one that I can I can probably explain is uh, typically speaking, most companies have conferences actually led by their sales team. So your account or your account executive is, hey, like I got to go to this $10,000, $15,000 conference. And then you have this poor person who's a salesperson manage um, the, the entire conference process. So, you're, so, so in fact, what you have is you have a salesperson um, negotiating with the conference, um, uh, project managing the deliverables for the conference, whether that's getting the banners, getting the booth, um, then awkwardly kind of just going to marketing and being like, hey, these are the assets I need to produce. Whereas if you just went to marketing and if you actually had a proper operational department, you can have your salesperson just do their job properly and your marketing operations takes over, negotiates the contract, figures out the deliverables, does the work back schedule, ensures everything lands on time, and your salesperson doesn't feel like he's spending 30% of his time with administrative tasks. And so uh, that's the operational side that I think a lot of people just don't see or they forget that there's this like underlying level of administrative coordination work that has to get done in order for marketing to do well. Um, and that is also part of the fact that, as again, we've talked about having stakeholders review things. It's also making sure that the stakeholders are happy with all the products up to 80 to 90% ideally. Um, and, and, and making sure that we're also talking about good things and they're being vetted by, you know, your subject matter experts, which are sometimes your salespeople, sometimes your senior executives, or sometimes even just your technical people within the organization. And just that coordination effort is your operations. And, and, um, 
And when you get the scale, it gets complicated. And when you get the multi-location, it gets complicated. And then when you get the multi-language, it gets even more complicated. And um, marketing operations is what really takes care of all of that. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. So, um, so I, I think that's, I think that's all very much the case. Now, uh, there's, you also have the bifurcations. I mentioned at the beginning, uh, particularly the second part of this, this would be a little bit wide ranging and cover a number of different topics. So here's another one. Uh, you also have a bifurcation between sales and marketing as many of us do. And, if you could tell us a bit about how you t separate those two things, and then you also mentioned to me in the green room that you have a way of blending those into CRO rules. So if you could define that for me as well, I know you're thinking, whoo, what a question. Yeah, that, that, that's a big question. All right. So, so I think, you know, if I really wanted to define it, uh, do you want me to define it by like responsibilities or like take, like, take it as however you like? Okay, so so I think the the best way, like I just want to do it in simple terms because I really don't want to bore people with responsibilities. I think in simple terms, sales is the activity of which a person needs to either be on the phone or be on email to manage some sort of relationship or contact in order to bring them to a sale. That's yeah. sales to me, okay? And then marketing is everything around that in the sense that marketing is either bringing interest before they meet sales and or um, marketing is enabling sales to do a better job, meaning they have better tools, whether that's technology tools or uh, sales enablement materials, whether those are case studies, their sales slicks, their proposals. Like the whole point is, is I want, or I, I, in the most ideal situation, my salespeople are 100% dedicated in like really making sure that they manage the relationship to the to their best of their abilities, and also that they have the ability to follow up on leads almost immediately. You know, ideally within five minutes of a form being submitted. So that's kind of how I split sales and marketing in, in my you know, kind of theory. Um, and, and, and to bring this all into one thing, um, so you, you said, well, how do you blend sales and marketing into a CRO role? Um, CRO roles are kind of interesting and it's a newer role. And I feel, especially considering the amount of marketing that we do for larger organizations, there is beginning to, uh, there's the beginning of a larger gray area of where sales and marketing are really starting to blend as a function more yeah. so than they were before, right? This isn't the days of direct mail, right? Where you get direct mail and it just goes to the salespeople. Like it's it's not that segmented anymore because the reality is, is that the, the technology stack of, the, of your customer relationship management system or just however you deal with your pipeline starts really blending into a, a kind of a digital feedback loop that's required on the marketing end. And, uh, and, and typically speaking, a lot of the times the marketing operations team uh, tends to manage that. And so this, this idea of like the CRO role is really a sales and marketing person, frankly speaking. Um, and, and for example, uh, a lot of the times um, when you do TAM work, total addressable market work and, 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 and identifying where you want to go in the market and how big that market is lands back in marketing because it's marketing that has to identify where exactly are you finding the data to actually target these people. And sometimes it's even the, the, the marketing team that's really doing all the initial email blasting because it's a technology, it's a technology driven effort. So you're not going to get your account manager setting up an email infrastructure and, and sending it. It's just typically not their skill set. You're typically going to see your marketing team take care of that. Um, so in, in some organizations that are a little, call it, you know, edgy with the way they work, you're actually starting to see CMOs uh, or chief marketing officers actually have their own sales development representative team. So they're actually taking their inbound leads from emails and, or sometimes even um, their, their inbound marketing activities. And it's going into a different funnel that's actually not run by sales. So there's this, there is this convergence of, of sales and marketing that I think is, is going to become more and more prevalent. And you're going to need to have um, a person who not only understands the sales methodology and the sales process, but you're also going to need a person who understands marketing because, it, because that TAM work and that data enrichment work always blends. Um, you know, it could be both departments, but 
you know, often uh, you, you want to have a marketer goes, well, that's a great TAM, but it's not even accessible. So, so how are you, how do you want to reach them? Because there's no way to, for you to actually reach them. So you can't, you can't create a market um, uh, that, that has a whole bunch of attributes that you can't even find data points on. Yeah. Um, so, so there's no points. So it's, it's kind of a wasted effort. Right, 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 right. Now, to uh, now the final thing that comes to mind here as we wrap up here is, you know, sometimes it's challenging to put a specific dollar amount of return on investment to each item of marketing we do. And some of that is by definition, in my view, particularly when it comes to what's known as awareness marketing. Uh, I mean, I have been trying to figure out for 19 years now how to measure the exact cash haul that comes in from every broadcast email that's ever been sent, either by me or by somebody I know. Uh, so for those who those who seek that, and another example is, you know, I've worked with uh, search engine optimization companies and companies that do social media advertising and such. And the ones that were any good would install four or five different tracking software simultaneously. Now, you'd think that you'd only need one tracking software because wouldn't they all track the same thing? But the fact is they needed four or five because they don't track the same thing. And sometimes they don't even come up with the same numbers. They just need several different sets of data so they can identify trends and commonalities. So with all that in mind, how do we know when we're reaching our audience? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. And what I will simply tell you is if if you if you're a listener right now and and you think you're going to get attribution from marketing, I'm going to tell you, you're going to get imperfect attribution, um, because a lot of the times when you get attribution, it's it's going to be something called last touch, or first touch, or or it's going to be some machine learned model. But the reality is is that unless you actually have a strong marketing operations team that's dealing with a very expensive marketing stack. You're, you're more often not going to get what, what you know, even if, even if you do do that, actually, frankly speaking, you're not often going to get really this one-to-one -one type attribution that you think you're going to get. I think we're, we're and, then, and then the other thing that, that's really important to note is, is that with privacy laws and trends moving upwards and upwards to this idea where, you know, we really don't want to identify people, you also have to understand investing into this, this, this infrastructure is actually just going to get more and more difficult through time. Because as privacy laws continue to move into a certain direction, you're always going to be facing this kind of uphill friction where people don't really want you knowing what they've done. So, so that's something that I want everyone to keep in mind. So how, do, so how do you measure awareness? So I don't want to leave that on a point where it's like, well, you can't. Well, you can. And I think what you've, put, what you've said is, 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 is generally how you do it. You measure it based on trends. Um, you have to have a baseline and you have to know that to a certain extent, if you invest into um, a particular channel or a particular activity, you expect to see um, the effectiveness in a trend. If you're not seeing any movement in your data points, then you know there's something wrong. And so this is called incrementality you know, measurement. Um, the other thing that I, I like to call, call is, is that that's simple for awareness. And, ju and just to make sure that you are measuring something is that awareness is really important for, for brand awareness, right? And so um, you can actually do this via Google Search Console. Um, so if you do set up your Google Search Console properly for your brand, if you are doing awareness activities, the one thing that I can say is you should expect to see your brand um, increase in impressions through time on Google Search Console. Because the reality is, is that majority of people hear something for the first time. They don't know your brand or have never heard of it. They're going to look up your brand on Google. And that should result in your Google Search Console data um, to, to essentially see what a little bit of a brand lift when it comes to branded terms. Um, it's just a, another tip when you're when you're looking out your your branded terms, you could use the query function, and there's something called regex. Use ChatGPT to create a regex for your brand, and then filter by that, and then you'll be able to see a very clear picture of whether or not your quote unquote awareness activities have driven any net positive effect to your brand name. Because if you're seeing that flat, then it's likely your awareness is not hitting your market. So that might mean 
you should change the channel or the approach or the creative. Um, but nonetheless, it means there's really, really no incremental left. Um, so, so I know this doesn't answer the dollar amount because the reality is the dollar amount is just going to be some fancy calculation of whether or not that actually means anything. Um, you're, 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 it's very difficult to get that one-to-one -one unless you have a closed loop system. So, you know, yeah. a good example of that would be like Starbucks and their application, right? You're, exactly. Th that's like a one-to-one, -one, but very few companies have that. Exactly. All right. So we're at the top of the hour. And uh, for those of you who have uh, heard what Nathan Young has to say and would be interested in possibly seeing more <laughs> about how he can work with you, uh, check out his website, which is a www.findyouraudience.online. That's www.findyouraudience.online. And you can discover more about their solutions. Uh, I know they have a great resource sensor there that will give you some, uh, it's, got, it's got a great blog going. Uh, there are some case studies you can check out. So you can see for yourself and make your decision about where you can get the best support for your marketing efforts. That's at www.findyouraudience.online. And with that, Nathan Young, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and believe me in education. Thank you so much. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.